0: Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Neil Phillips.
1: And me, Victoria Hillman.
0: We're up to episode seven. A bit of a different episode this one. We're going to skip the normal format and just concentrate on... We've got a lot of questions on wildlife photography, so we're going to try and spend as much time as we can on that. So, got a few shout-outs.
1: Yep, so the first one is to Susie from Casual Birder, just to say hi. Thank you very much for, you know, helping us promote our podcast.
0: Indeed, yep. And and she's got a very good podcast of her own. So look up Casual Birder. Definitely. The podcast to look up. And also a big shout out to Rachel from Hidden Wings and Bloodlust podcast. If you like Ladybirds, that's a good one to check out as well. Yes. And I guess we'll give, shall we say hello to Ben, Daniel and Rich. That's Ben, Andrew and Daniel Trim. And they'll be listening to this podcast on the way up to Scotland to avoid talking to each other. I've been saving them up. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> so have a good journey, guys. Um, yeah. And I'm afraid you're going to have to talk to each other on the way home, though.
0: Yeah, we haven't got sort of what, eight hours worth <laughs> we're not talking that long on this podcast are we? yes so no wildlife news did you want to mention your workshops victoria very quickly
1: uh the brand new ones yes so i actually have a little bit of exciting news in that i'm teaming up with the rspb Hamwall nature reserve uh, which is down in somerset and i'm actually running three very special workshops for them this year it's actually an introduction to macro photography An introduction to wildlife photography, and then an autumn nature photography day. And all the details will be up on my um, Twitter account very, very soon. They they went live yesterday, and we'll get everything out and promoted next week. So, if you fancy coming and joining me for a day on day of photography on sunset levels, pop along, say hi.
0: I have some workshop news, but hopefully I'll be able to share in the next podcast. But very exciting to do with my pond photography, and that's all I'm going to say. (laughs) <laughs> so, talking off, which leads us nicely on, staying on the subject of wildlife photography, we have the first of our questions. Do you want to do the honors, Victoria?
1: Yep. So this comes from Liquid Tweeter. And so, with so many options out there, what are the basics to look for when looking to purchase a camera for wildlife and how much can you expect to spend? And it's a question I don't know about you, Neil. Know, I get asked this quite a lot, actually. It's like mm. pops up quite a lot. So Neil and I have actually done... A bit of research into this at various different levels from kind of entry level intermediate and then to advanced stroke um, professional
0: the first thing i usually say is if you're just starting out photography so if you've got no experience on photography or very little i generally suggest with wildlife not only nature but wildlife if you're doing birds and mammals and stuff you need the reach you need the focal length um, a longer lens basically and the chief way to do that is to get a bridge camera they're not as quite as fast at autofocus and they've got a smaller sensor so they're a bit noisier, get a bit more grain in the image but bridge cameras start from you can get pick them up for 100 pounds secondhand to get a decent one 500 pound you can get a pretty good one and if it's small size you're after you can purchase the sony hs10 range i think they're up to mark 4 or mark 5 now i've got the mark 3 but you're talking over a thousand pound for those but they've got really long focal length and a high-speed video you can slow stuff down 40 times it's pretty cool but one thing i will say bridge cameras is make sure you have a viewfinder and it's what i started off with panasonic fz7 and look at me now <laughs> <laughs> you do get your yeah, warning comes should attach with a warning you may become obsessed and spend all your you know extra money on <laughs> camera gear maybe even yes. have <laughs> <Not> <laughs> it is yeah. a little addictive yeah and i i, I I used to recommend Panasonic and Fujis and there's nothing wrong with them now I just think the other makes probably caught them up a bit now but you're not paying you know, if you know if you buy a Canon or a Nikon, there's sometimes a danger you're paying for the brand a bit there as well. But with special offers and stuff, that all goes out the window. So just keep your eye out for a good deal and go and try one in the camera shop is always another good advice, isn't it? And buy from the camera shop, not Amazon. Support your local camera shops.
1: Yeah. And actually, one thing I would say is before we talk about like going on to digital SLRs is actually try and buy UK cameras and lenses rather than the grey imports because if anything goes wrong they will be much easier to get sorted than the grey imports. There's nothing wrong with the grey imports but they normally have to be sent back to Asia at a cost to you to be fixed. So it's just a bit yeah. of a word of warning there. If we move on to kind of entry level digital SLR, and that's the ones with interchangeable lenses. I mean, generally for wildlife photography, like Neil said, you want something with a bit of reach. So something in the region of like a 70 to 300 mil lens. Yes. And you can actually, yes. if you if you have a look, you can actually get some really, really good deals out there. I mean, I did a bit of research. You can get entry level camera and lens for under 500 pounds. Yeah, It is a little bundle. And if you just look around, there's normally, they do loads of special offers and you get this camera and you can get this lens and that lens and whatever. So you, yeah, you're probably looking about 500 or just under 500 for that. And, you know, that, that's pretty much across the brands as well. So that's not, you know, even even with, I shoot Canon and actually the, you know, you can get good deals with the Canon under about 500. So uh Nikon's about the same, I believe as well.
0: So they're perfectly good, these entry levels. Some of them, they haven't quite got the advanced features of the sort of mid-level and the high-end range but if you're just starting off they can be very good the the, the 7300 lens again it's not quite as sharp as the more expensive lenses but if you're starting out for i'd say 300 to minimum if you're doing wildlife because mm. otherwise you'll find it's too short, and even that you'll find a bit short. I mean, I've got a lens that can go with a teleconverter can go up to 1200 mil, and even that's too short. Sometimes it's a, it's the law of wildlife photography a lot of the time. But you I think the thing is, is
1: as well, yeah. with the with a lot of the entry level or beginners um, yeah. digital SLRs, they're actually crop sensor, yeah. so you have you have that extra reach that's on true, those yeah. lenses anyway. <laughs>
0: so the mid level stuff, you're talking if you're talking Canon, you're talking stuff. It's a 90D they're up to now nikon it's probably a d500 but so these cameras these mid-level cameras tend to be around sort of 800 to a thousand pound for your body so you're getting to more expensive but you're getting most of the features of a pro camera but usually of a crop sensor these micro four thirds you can get something like a panasonic g9 or an olympus em1 mark ii probably around about a thousand pound range now i think and when you get up to that sort of budget if you spend 800 pounds on a lens, you can get like the Sigma 150 to 600mm, which on a crop sensor will give you a 900mm lens, which is very handy for bird photography. Likewise, on the Micro Four Thirds end, you can get the a a Panasonic 100 to 400, and that's just over a thousand pounds, especially if you're looking secondhand, and that can be quite handy for wildlife too because that gives that's a 200 to 800mm equivalent uh, obviously a lot smaller if you're looking to do video as well i'd look at the panasonics because the gh5 and the g9 are probably the best for video without getting a pro level canon hanging around the sort of 2000 pound budget mark for the mid-level if you look at the 300mm f4 prime lenses that gives you really good quality and a decent length i used to shoot with a pentax 300 mil and got some really lovely images with that it's a, it's a 300 f4 not the two eights the 300 mil two eights are sort of thousands of pounds and i'll let victoria talk about the full frame because it's something she has a lot more experience with <laughs> than me
1: so if you're looking at the more kind of advanced what they generally refer to as the pro level cameras like we, we said previously generally speaking they tend to be full frame uh, they are also weather sealed as well, so you can use them out in you know, varying weather conditions. They're, they're a lot more robust for being used outside and you know, with the rigors of what a professional photographer would generally put them through. But you're looking in the region of starting off at about two and a half thousand pounds up to five, six thousand pounds just for the body at this point. So we're talking, you know, your top-end professional-level cameras, and with those sticking you know with a prime lens and a lot of um, professional photographers will generally use prime lenses and you're looking at upwards of £3,000 for a lens. If you look, if you're looking for say, I don't know, like a 500 f4, probably looking about £5,000 for the lens, but you get what you pay for. They are, you know, they're weather sealed. They are the the top end. You can use them, you know, in, in all kinds of weather conditions and they're sharp, they're pin sharp as well. So that that kind of takes you all the way through from entry level to kind of intermediate and then mm. onto your advanced level as well
0: yeah we won't go too much i mean there's there's loads of pros and cons of the different systems as well so you know if you shoot canon you've got this is sort of getting very advanced stuff now you've got the mp63 which is a yeah. 60 mil macro lens but it goes four times the magnification of one one which we'll talk about a bit later which is really advanced macro if you go down um and the Canon's pretty good for video. If you go down the Olympus route, which I have, um, I've got the advantage of being able to shoot in low light as long as the animal is not moving. So I've got really good anti-shake. I've got a lot more reach. And again, it's completely weatherproof. I think Olympus is the only manufacturer that's got the weatherproof seal. So a lot of manufacturers say their stuff's weatherproof, and it probably is, but they, it's not guaranteed. If the water gets in, you still avoid your warranty. It's, it's, it's a, you can't cover it in one podcast. <laughs> All the interesting <laughs> But that should give you a bit of an idea of uh, what the advantage of different manufacturers. And it's all pros and cons of all of them. So you just have to think about what you want to shoot, really.
1: And I think also the the one bit of advice that I do end up giving a lot of people when they're looking to either buy their first camera or they want to upgrade their camera is go to a shop um, or, you know, if there's an imaging show near you, go to that where you know several manufacturers are going to be there and try them out. See how it feels in your hand because a camera that I might absolutely love and and really love the feel of in my hands i love using it it you know neil might not he might not like the feel of it in his hands we're all very different you know our hands are different sizes how we how a camera feels is really really important because you know if you're comfortable with how it feels then it's going to be a lot easier for you to get used to it and then you know take the photos that you want
0: uh, we both shoot similar subjects and yet have completely different gear. I won't say who's got better shots because we both, we both all know who. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but we're both, you know, we're both quite happy with them. I mean, I do lots of stacked images and don't uh, joke about this um, the other night when we couldn't get this podcast to work. Um, I'm always trying to get more depth field, and Victoria's trying to get less. i trying to get less, with, yeah. <laughs> which, I normally again, shoot
1: about 2.8. That's, yes,
0: and, that's my thing. Well, I was doing, yesterday, I was shooting 200 image stacks of woodlice to get the whole woodlice in focus at minimum focus distance. So if you want to do stacked images, I think Olympus is probably the way to go at the moment. Again, that's a whole other minefield to go into yes. another podcast, I think. Do, think we,
1: do we want to touch briefly on weights of cameras?
0: Yeah, that's, 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 oh, that's probably a good thing for people to weigh, uh, weigh up. I didn't even mean that one. Uh, <laughs> you definitely have to yeah. leave that one in.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, weight of camera and lens. So I think now if we, we'll kind of go... More down the macro route because that's what Neil and yeah. I do the most of. We are predominantly macro photographers, even though we do a lot of other wildlife. So I actually dug out the weights of my um, camera bodies and also my lenses. So my camera bodies weigh about 900 grams, and I shoot on a 7D Mark II and a 5D Mark III, and I have two macro lenses. So one I've got 100 mil macro, which is about 600 grams. And my 180 mil Sigma macro, which is the one that I absolutely love and shoot most of my macro work on, is actually over 1.6 kilograms. (laughs) So if you stick that macro lens on a camera body, we're talking around two and a half kilograms of weight. And that's, you know, what you're either hand holding or that's what you're having to carry around with you. And it is a lot, but, you know, it works for me. I'm happy with that. But I know um, Neil's equipment is considerably lighter.
0: Yes, I bought the Olympus for the for the extra reach and and the the, the stacking and the various other reasons. The one problem with Micro Four Thirds always was the autofocus was a bit sluggish, but they did solve it with the EM1 Mark II. It's probably not quite as fast as a top-end Canon or Nikon, but again, the body is a lot cheaper and lighter. So if I look at my gear, the EM1 Mark II, which was their top end they have now got a the em1 mark x which is basically an em1 mark 2 with a few extra features and a grip permanently attached to make it a bit more professional but the em1 mark 2 without a grip on so i believe your em1 em oh, not em mark, mark d d whatever it's called the canon thing is yep. you've basically got a grip attached to it permanently haven't you the way yes. it's, it's built whereas the em1 is a much smaller yep. body and that's only 574 grams the best macro on olympus is the 60 mil which sounds a bit short but of course you've got the two times crop so it's effectively 120 mil and that weighs a tiny it's a tiny little lens it's about the size of a film pot a bit bigger than that it weighs 186 grams so you can imagine so my body and the macro lens weighs less than <laughs> your, your 100 mil lens, I believe, or maybe not quite that light. But, but to, to put things yeah. in perspective, the 300 mil f4 lens, so not quite as fast as the 180 mil f2.8, only weighs 127 kilo. Is that correct? That must be. Do you right mean 1.27 kilos? Oh, sorry, yeah, 1.27. <laughs> it only weighs 120. Uh, well, say it again, then. Uh, the 300 mil only weighs 1.27 kilos, which is with Dixie light and that's an f4 and it's still sharp and i uh, believe me it is sharp it's a quite expensive lens for 300 mil i believe the rrp was over 2000 i didn't spend that much on it thank god i'm not that rich and there is i can afford it because i've traded in some old gear so that's a 600 mil equivalent and might not be quite as sharp as the canon 600 mil f4 but that lens weighs <laughs> how many multiples more than that i don't know yeah i think it's probably it's about eight or ten kilo at least isn't it
1: it's going to be a lot more than that yeah
0: yeah and the, the benefits of being small obviously is my camera bag i can put all my lenses and two bodies in and walk around all day and i can do stuff like lean over the edge of a boardwalk and dangle that huge 300mm lens and get water level shots of marsh frogs and stuff so depending on what you do so if i was trying to photograph hobbies flying at high speed i'd be much better for victorious lens yeah although that said the olympus can still do it I've, other people have done much better than me i have to say on that subject but, <laughs> i don't do enough birding for flight photography but i do get i still manage to get some shots it's, it's again it's all compromises as as anyone will say in photography it's always a compromise between your aperture your iso and your shutter speed to get the shot in the first place that's where you get to the gear so uh,
1: it is and, and it is very much personal preference as to what mm-hmm. you are comfortable working with
0: yeah so
1: so i think that kind of sums up equipment um yeah. so should we go on to our next question
0: yeah we've got we've got two questions here that are quite closely related on subject. Beth Nightingale, she says she's very interested in learning more about macro photography and how to photograph pond life. Well, I'll settle that. I'll talk about that, um, that second bit a bit later. And we've also got Rachel from Hidden Wings and Bloodlust podcast. What is the best macro lens and how do I get a good in-focus photo when the insect is moving fast? Oh, that's always a good question, that one. <laughs> it is. So um what do you reckon victoria do you want to start
1: yeah well if we start with macro lenses yeah um so i actually have i actually own three macro lenses a 50 mil 100 mil and a 180 mil so quite a wide range now i generally use my 180 mil the most it's my favorite lens to use probably 95 percent of my macro work is actually shot with that lens it's f2.8 it's a beautiful lens to use it's pin sharp and it's weighty but if you're looking for I think if you're just starting out in macro or it's something that you're going to do you know, a fair amount of time, but not totally dedicated to macro, then I think both Neil and I agree agree on this, that you need to be looking around the 100 mil mark. So 100 or 105 mil in length. Mm. And most manufacturers do a lens of that kind of length. Yeah. And the beauty is that they're easy to hold. They tend to be much smaller. Most of them now have image stabilizer in them as well, so you can handhold them. And if you're looking for a lens, you know, those those hundred mil macros actually make really beautiful portrait lenses and you can use them for a lot of other stuff as well. So it's quite a versatile lens if you want something that you can maybe use for quite a lot of different stuff. So I would say in terms of you just starting out on macro photography, I'd I'd look around the hundred mil mark
0: yeah yeah I, I, the lens everyone used to rave about um i've seen people do it so much recently is the sigma 150 mil it's a nice so it's not quite as expensive as the 180 and it's available on canon nick and nick definitely and i believe sony as well it was never available on pentax and it's not available on limpus sadly so 100 100 mil minimum but of course on a crop sensor that turns into 150 mil that just gives you the working distance so when you've got an insect they tend to get a bit flighty as long as you approach slowly if you get to minimum focus distance on 100 mil or certainly 150 mil you they usually won't fly off from you hopefully <laughs> but that doesn't always do that obviously whereas i mean, i used to shoot with a 35 mil macro on pentax sometimes and that's fantastic if you've got a cooperative subject it's a nice little compromise between working distance and getting your environment in the shot so you can just get a, a wide angle prime lens and put an extension tube on which is a little hollow tube that um, goes between the lens and the camera and that Brings closest focus distance even closer, so you can get closer in on your shots. But one tip I will say for macro lenses is always make sure they're actually macro lenses, so they have a one-to-one ratio at the minimum focus distance. Because there's a lot of inverted commas macro lenses. So
1: actually, macro dedicated macro lenses are actually all prime lenses as well.
0: Yeah, it will be
1: one length. It will be a hundred mil, a 105, a 150, a 180. It will be a prime lens. They they're going to be your best macro lenses to use mm. for macro photography, yep. for sure. And it do, does depend on your subject. We'll talk about insects specifically uh, in a second. But I you, I do everything from plants to invertebrates to amphibians and reptiles. And my 180, I will actually use that on my 7D. It essentially becomes nearly a 290mm f2.8 macro lens. So if I'm working particularly with amphibians and reptiles, or slightly flighty in insect, it allows me to be that little bit further away, but still get the shots that I want. So it gives me more working distance to do that.
0: And you can do ridiculous things like I try sometimes, which is put loads of extension tubes and a teleconverter on your 300mm Prime and, and get ridiculous working distance and get quite close. It's a, yeah, but that's getting a little bit more to the fun, crazy things that I like to do sometimes. Talking of added lenses, if you have a bridge camera, or a macro lens like my sixty mil or the hundred mil macro on Pentax or something where it's got a quite small front element. You can get these screw on lenses. I mean you can get them for the bigger lenses, but the, the... They're of varied quality these close-up lenses, but the Raynox lenses are highly regarded. I use them myself. I in fact stack two different Raynox lenses, put extension tubes on as well, and that's how I get close-ups of things are about two or three millimeters long. So that's getting, but that's going beyond the one-one. And if you get the Canon MPE65 again, that will focus four times what a normal macro lens would. And I think, is it, uh, Venus have brought out a couple, like a one-two-one one as well, haven't they? There is another in, one, yeah. And there's another that one. one that does similar to MPE65, but it's got mixed reviews from what I've seen. And I mean mixed, but I don't mean bad reviews. I do actually mean mixed by that. Some people are praising it and other people are saying it's rubbish.
1: So hopefully that kind of answers the question about lenses. Mm. Um, so if we now talk about subjects. Oh, yes. And... I've uh, got one for Rachel about getting a in-focus photo when an insect is moving fast. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I have to admit, most of my stuff is done first thing in the morning when the insects are still naturally cold and potentially damp from the night before, so they're not actually moving anyway. Uh, that's actually one of the best times to go and photograph them because you have time. They're actually too cold and, you know, sometimes too wet. They have to warm up and dry out before they can take to the wing. That's actually a really good time to go and practice your macro photography and but in terms of if you want to get something when it's moving there's a there's a couple of things that you need to take into consideration here and i'm going to touch on the more kind of field crafty skills and let neil um, discuss more from the camera point of view Uh, so what i would say is if you want to try and get images of um, insects that are are moving so maybe in flight you running or whatever learn about the behavior of your your subject so sit there watch it um, see what it does see how it moves see you know does it climb up to the end of a stick and then wave its legs around before opening its wing cases and flying off so actually observe it see how it moves see what its behaviors are learn about the subject and then you can actually start to predict when something's going to take flight and you can actually do this with butterflies with beetles quite a lot of stuff really they'll have like a little pattern, you know, with a butterfly. If it's, if it's feeding on a flower, the moment it takes it, it's, you know, it, stops feeding, it's going to then more or less take to the wing straight afterwards. So by learning the behaviours and brushing up on your field craft skills so that you know, you know, keep at eye level or below, don't go in over the top of your subjects because to them you're just a predator and you might eat them. Uh, they don't know that you just want to take a picture. So try and go in at eye level or below and you know very slowly and carefully go in don't make make too much noise or disturbance and that that's kind of from the field craft skill point of view and i'm going to let neil take you through the more technical photographic point of view
0: first tip is don't (laughs) avoid moving to well you kind of cover that (laughs) <laughs> avoid moving subjects yes this is the bit i have to confess to rachel that i've never i've got the odd good shot of a ladybird i've never got a shot of a ladybird i'm particularly happy with because they keep moving around i'm guessing this is where she's coming from with this i was assuming she's obsessed with ladybirds which is a good thing to be obsessed with i have to be honest well one tip i've used one trick i've used with millipedes and wood lice and well mostly millipedes because they don't move quite so fast is and i don't know slugs as well and stuff like that is you pre-focus in front of them when i was trying to photograph flatworms in an aquarium I'd pre-focus on the edge of the leaf where I knew they are going to come up over the top or in front or sort of a few millimetres in front of them and just be ready to fire the camera. Good old spray and pray as well. If you're not using flash, you don't have to worry about recharge. Then I think <laughs> the technical uh, way of photographing them is take lots of pictures and hope one's in focus because <laughs> they're just going to go through that focal plane so quickly. It is spray and pray time, I think. With
1: it, it is. And also don't, don't give up. Yeah, keep, you know, trying. keep Yeah, just keep working at it. And working at it, and you will get there eventually. I mean, with all photography, yes, you, you can get the lucky shots, and we—I'm pretty sure we've all got those lucky shots in our portfolio where yeah. we've gone, "Wow, we've actually managed to nail it." Um, but just keep at it, because for most of us, we—you know—we work and work and work. We shoot, you know, almost every single day. We're out in all weather conditions and shooting the same subjects week after week, month after month, year after year. And you do definitely notice the difference when you start doing that.
0: Pond creatures. So, so pond over, creature to, over to you for that one, because I'm guessing oh, she doesn't mean frogs. Photographing pond creatures, well, this is always fun. Took me a few years to work out what the heck I was doing. There's a few very basic tips. Um, it's a whole. There's a reason I have a whole day long workshop on this. I just gave away what the news was earlier now, uh, because it does take a while to talk about everything. But I'll go through a few basic tips. Uh, this is neil's quick tips on porn photography number one get a small aquarium so you want a small one not a full-sized tank you can use the little plastic ones but we'll recommend a glass sort of flat fronted one at least Uh, you can make your own Uh, use clean water so not water from the tap though because it'll have chlorine and horrible things in it you can can use tap water, but use treat it with aquarium uh, safe stuff that you use when using your fish tank and i would still leave it for a a day out so i have bottles filled up i had to use rainwater for my water but because i know that's nice and clean and it's what's in my pond and in theory in all the ponds near me uh, it would just be rainwater uh, when you're shooting the animals you might think i'll oh, put them in the tank lovely easy i guarantee they'll go straight in the corner of your tank and make life hard so arrange your leaves and stuff and pond weed in there make sure that's clean as well give that clean in your aquarium uh, but arrange it so it doesn't try and prevent them getting in the corner i guarantee they will but um, and be ready to shoot as soon as you put it in the tank so don't put them in the tank and then get your your gear ready because they might sit on that weed for that split second when you put them in and then not do it again lighting i read a how to photograph pond creatures in a magazine once and they said don't use flash which i disagree with because it's a much best way to light it they didn't want to use flash because of all the dirt in the water but if you keep the water clean it's not a problem i have started experimenting with led lights thanks to a certain co-host uh, a bit more and yeah with bigger subjects that is actually can work quite well and of course you can do video then as well but i think the best bit of advice i can give other than obviously look after your creatures and stuff like that i, think, I imagine that goes without saying but you know when you've got them in an aquarium, you are responsible for them. It's that's so am I'm, I'm being lecturing now. I'm trying not to be lecturing, but I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> They're your responsibility, and you've got to look after them. Be careful not to put things in with diving beetle lavas because they will eat everything. <laughs> but the best bit of advice I can give is literally experiment and find your own way. Because I've done this, I don't want to say more than anyone, but probably in recent years, probably more than anyone. And I'll do something one way one day, and I think I'll do exactly the same the other day, and I'll get a different results sometimes it won't work at all don't give up i've had days where i spent two hours photographing stuff and gone home with nothing or walked out my shed with nothing but (laughs) got you know and then other days i'll have a half hour lunch break and i'll get better shots than i've got for months it's just it's weird sometimes the animals cooperate sometimes they don't sometimes you can't quite get the reflections right and sometimes uh, I, i understand the physics of it and i still can't get my head around it sometimes when i can't stop reflections i do find the best way to stop reflections is actually to clo- f- uh, focus in closer. The closer you get, the less of an issue it becomes. I do find you can even put the flashes in front of the glass. So generally, you put the flashes to the side or above, so you're not getting reflection off the front glass. Um, and I'll probably leave it there. There are so many other things I could say, but that would be a podcast in itself. Um,
1: well, maybe I don't we can away all my trade secrets. <laughs> well, maybe we can do another one. Um, you know, a bit later on in the year, and that's yeah. on kind of more advanced ideas and that. Yeah, I might kind do that. Um,
0: and, well, I've kind of given the game away. Um, oh, it's a bit crass to say it, but, you know, if you come on my workshop, which is what I'm um, going to be secret news is, <laughs> i will just give it away now, um, that'll be announced. So it'll be in the autumn, and based in Surrey, if it all goes well. But, um, yes, that's what I had a meeting about yesterday. So, yeah, I think that kind of covers it, basically. Uh, just drop me a message directly if you've got any specific questions.
1: Yeah, and, and likewise, and you, you, you can always slow. message us on either, like, the uk wildlife podcast facebook or twitter pages or or on our own as well you know if you've got a specific question about a specific type of animal you want to photograph just drop us a question and you know we will try our very best to to help you out with it as well
0: we may not know (laughs) we're not we're not but if we
1: don't know we probably know people that do know that's and then we can ask them and then pass it on to you
0: right and now our last question see i was skeptical whether this would last the full hour but we're up to 40 minutes already so that's Ah, okay yeah Um,
1: I think this one really is kind of a little bit more for you, although I can help more on the accessories.
0: Yeah. Recording again, starting right. 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 And our next question comes from David Fielding, uh, probably better known as Urban Ponds 101 on Twitter. The chap that puts all the lovely frog and uh, newt videos up. So his question is, what camera lens and stand would you recommend for pond videos? around £500-ish, struggling with a noisy motor and a creaky l- tripod and inability to focus and cut through the glare. So what bridge camera and anti-glare lens would you? we recommend that could be used for ponds and birds? Size and weight is also a consideration as is downloading data. Ooh, that's quite a doozy, that question. So start with the glare, I guess. Probably getting a polarizer would be a good move there, I think, if he hasn't got one already. Yeah. Uh, You're more experienced with filters and stuff than me, I think
1: um yeah i I would say try a polarizer filter that can actually help and actually some of the the uh, more expensive the higher end uv filters can actually help to cut down on a little bit glare as well Uh, it just depends what camera you want it to go with because some of them if they don't have the thread to put a lens uh, filter on the end of the lens it's not really going to help
0: yes so Right, bridge cameras, I guess that's more my field. Um, that is new. Yeah, noisy motors. Well, I can't pretend to be an expert on video, though I am getting... I'm not expert level, but I'm above beginner, I guess. Generally, people don't zoom in videos, they say. I mean, it's not, again, it's not a hard and fast rule. It's like rule of thirds and that kind of stuff. People don't zoom. So what I would... One suggestion I'd make is maybe do sort of zoom in film, then... Stop the video, zoom in a bit, and film again, and zoom in and sort of do it in stages. So you could do it in zooming in the editing, because uh, the problem is always going to be is that the motors are always going to come up in the in the film. I think, I think it's, just, it's just the nature of motorized zooming; it's going to make some sort of noise. Um, I get around it because I'm obviously using uh, interchangeable lenses. I'm using a Panasonic GH5, and I'm putting an Olympus lens on, and if i zoom i can or change the focus i do it manually with my hand so uh or i have occasionally used the autofocus it's generally a bit too fast though and i don't think i haven't found a way of controlling the speed on it but that's a whole other matter and it's a hypersonic motor so you can't hear the noise of that motor um i don't know i have to be honest i don't know if any bridge cameras that have those hypersonic motors all the ones i've come across are all noisy when they zoom uh, including my sony i believe i have to double check that but my sony which is a top embridge camera is still noisy so there may there may be some out there i know some of the i'm pretty sure some of the mid-level video cameras do have hypersonic motors on their zooms so that might be something to look at whether that's in 500 pound budget i don't know there might be some second hand last generation higher end one if that makes sense so there will still be hd but they won't be 4k um, and that could be something to look at um i have to say that video, video camera knowledge is a little bit out of my knowledge i have to say uh, but when it comes to editing if you want to go down the editing route i've been playing with a program called davinci resolve which is completely free there is a paid version but the completely free version is so stacked with features it's unbe- it's hard to believe it's free it's a quite a steep learning curve to learn it but there's loads of videos on youtube to help you and after i've been going for about six months to a year on it i'm starting to get there with it it's it's a really nice program and there's so many features i haven't touched on it yet yeah, so I don't want to say for £500, that's quite a triff one. You could possibly look at one of the old Panasonic GH3 GH4s. With, I don't know if it's going to suit what you want to do um, and find a old, you know, Micro Four Thirds lens to go on it. And you might be able to get that 500 probably be a bit more than that, I'd imagine. Yeah, so did you want to cover tripods?
1: Yeah, so I think generally speaking overall, I think tripod, having a tripod for your wildlife photography is a good idea, depending, you know, and that's whether you're doing macro or, you know, birds or mammals or, you know, videoing. I Mm. think if you're videoing, having a good tripod is really important because you don't want the shake. Now, I've done a little bit of research into different tripods and you can actually get an all-in-one tripod. So you've got the legs, including the head for around about hundred pound, and that will be a good, relatively sturdy tripod. And... You, that, that would take the weight of a bridge camera. Now, the thing is, when you're looking at tripods, you can either go down the route of getting one, which is the legs and the head all together. So you just buy it as one. But you need to look at what load weight it can take. And that's basically the amount of weight that that tripod can actually hold. So if you are just sticking a little bridge camera on or a you know smaller entry level, beginner's level, um, digital SLR with a small lens on it, then you know you can get a good, tripod between you know 100 and 200 pounds if you have a much heavier system or you're using these big prime lenses I I would personally say look at getting tripod legs and a head separately and look at the ones that can take the weight of your equipment and that's when knowing the weight of your equipment comes in really Mm -hmm. handy so I know my camera lens weighs about two and a half kilos so I need legs and a head that can take that so that you know it can still be standing there I don't have to hold on to it. I don't have to worry that if I let go, something's going to snap or, or move. But I mean, there's lots of options out there. You've got the traveler tripods. They're generally quite a bit smaller and much more lightweight because they're designed for people to travel with them. And then you've got, go right up to your, your carbon fiber tripods. They're going to be much more expensive, um, but they can hold the weight. They're very robust and they're strong. Mm. And then you get the head to go on top and you can actually buy photography heads and video heads as well but again much like we were saying with the camera equipment i would actually say go to a shop go to a show go and have a look at these tripods because you have to be comfortable working the tripod as well it is just as important as working your camera if you're going to be working off a tripod you need to be comfortable with you know how to change various levers or you know the positioning and that you don't want it to become a chore you don't want to maybe have you might not want you know too many options to change or you might want more so it really is again go and have a look do you know do your research pop into a coffee shop if you can and have a look at the different options that they they give you
0: yeah i'd, I'd always uh, recommend with any of these sort of tripods and stuff if your camera weighs three kilo look at something that can take five because you don't want to be pushing it to the maximum because you'll obviously be stressing the tripod and it won't perform quite as well but obviously don't go too nuts don't buy a, a <laughs> rock solid 100 kilo video one or and you only got a five kilo camera but uh yeah yeah i can't really add much more to that i think that's i hope that's useful sorry david it's probably not as usual as you hoped but uh should give you some more insights and again if you've got any further questions? You know to get hold of us, so uh, I'll yeah, try just, and help as much as I can.
1: Just drop a message, yeah. um, and I think we had one last question, which I've actually just just found as well, from I believe his name's Dan on Twitter. His Twitter handles jestigan. Hope I pronounced that right. And he just said that he got a digital SLR and a 15 to 55 mil zoom for Christmas. What would be the first pieces of equipment you would maybe add to that for nature photography? Now, first things first, I'd say it really does depend on what you're looking at photographing. Is it general nature and wildlife or are you looking at maybe just doing plants or macro or, you know, birds and mammals? So because it changes and depending on what you want to do, I don't think there's there's really a kind of hard and fast list that we can give you that would help. Um, but I'd say if if it's birds and mammals you're looking at doing then you're going to need a, a longer zoom lens yeah,
0: yeah at least 300 as we said already isn't it yeah no questions yeah and I, I'd, I would recommend if your budget stretches to it get something like a a 150 to 500 or 150 to 600 lens because you, you you'll get the 300 and you might find it frustrating if your but so if your budget can stretch to it you know there's there's second hand 150 to 500 kicking around for and i use one for oh, I don't know how many years, three or four years before I got my 300mm prime. And yeah, as long as you don't go right up to the far end of 500, you shoot at sort of 420, 450. It's perfectly sharp, certainly at F8. And yeah, you you know, people have got shots in uh, national competitions with it. So it's obviously a perfectly good lens. It's, you know, slightly more limiting than the expensive gear. But again, most of the time it's in good light. You're not going to notice a difference.
1: Well, I, I use the Sigma 150 600mm Contemporary lens yeah. which we i think it's around about 800 pounds depending on what sites you look at yeah. and yeah i have no problems with that at all i've uh, got lots of friends that use it it's great it, it's, it's a, great a beautiful lens, lens i'd probably use. have
0: it if it was on the olympus fit and i didn't already have a yeah. lens that was about the same thing in fact this um if those are interested the story goes i went into a shop to buy a nikon d500 and a 150 to 600 lens to go with it when, when i bought my olympus and again this is one of the good advantages of going to a shop is that he asked me, he, they knew me a little bit, so they knew what, roughly what I shot and asked me a bit more and suggested Olympus and I'll tell you what, best decision ever made in photography, easily.
1: It definitely has its advantages. I mean, you know, it's something that Neil and I have spoken about a lot. Because we both shoot macro, we we often shoot very similar subjects but with very different outcomes and our styles are so completely different and do you remember Mm. the day that we had at at thursley when we basically Mm. swapped memory cards and we just swapped cameras yeah uh, to try it out and as as much as you know the lighter smaller equipment really appeals to me Mm. i also know that the style of macro photography that i do i actually couldn't do with the lenses where the the front element is so small yeah you know I, i need that that big size at the end to allow me to kind of shoot through and do the blurring and the wide apertures
0: and everything well i was doing those stacks of woodlice if i had (laughs) vice versa if i had the big lens or the big element i wouldn't be able to get low enough to shoot you know rest the camera on the log and fire off a stack i didn't even use a beanbag or anything i was using natural light one foot for a second just wedging the camera into the log to get stability and photographing the woodlouse and the centipedes and stuff it's just it's a, as my dad always used to say swings and roundabouts <laughs> it is yeah. definitely swings and roundabouts for sure yeah. but basically you know you gain one thing you lose another it's just but yes getting back to the question because I, I feel we've i've dragged us off a little bit if you're doing birds 300 mil if you want to do some macro look at a hundred mil macro lens look at the sigmas 100, Sigma 105 tamron 90 mil are both, I think they're both sub 300. They certainly used to be. I don't know what's happening at the moment because the price of a lot of camera gear has gone up recently, and you're definitely better find some second-hand ones kicking around. Did they sell what manufacturer the camera no,
1: was? No, um, oh. because it just says a digital SLR, and I know that you yeah, know Canon obviously do the 100mm, I think Nikon actually do a 90 or 100mm, yeah, or a 100 mil as well. Mil. So.
0: yeah, so again, they're, they're they're arguably superior lenses, certainly in build quality, maybe, but there's nothing wrong with the Sigmas and Tamrons. And i think that's quite a good place to start actually if you've got an image budget is just to get 100 mil macro and get a feel if you like them flowers and insects and although that kit lens would be all right for some flower shots i'd imagine but yeah and actually mm. sorry go on i was just gonna say you might find it after once you... when you're starting off it's pretty good but you might find it limiting
1: and the only other thing i'll say is if you're if you fancy having a go at macro but you're not maybe entirely sure you've oh. always got the option if you have your your camera you can actually hire lenses and you can yes. hire them from anywhere from a couple of days to, you know, I think a week or a couple of weeks. And you've got a whole variety. And they'll have most of the main manufacturers. You'll be able to hire macro lenses, prime lenses, telephoto prime lenses, zoom lenses. And that could be another option for you that if you want to give something a go, you know, maybe for you're going on a workshop or you're, you've got a trip and you just want to give a different lens a go. Then that could be an option for you is to actually just hire it for yep. that time and see how you get on and try it because yeah you know, if you if you try a lens and you find that you don't like it well it's going back after a few days or you know after your trip anyway yeah and then you can maybe try something else so that that's another option you can actually do that as well that or if you if you do go on a workshop yeah you know, speak to whoever's running the workshop as well because i know in the past i've actually you know lent the odd lens to someone if they wanted to try yeah you know Same a dedicated here. macro lens i've just lend them mine so they could actually try it and see how they get on mm. so that's the other option if you're going on a course or a workshop you know maybe speak to the person that's running it and see if there's any way you know would they have something that they you know you could borrow yeah so there's lots of options there
0: yeah i'd, I'd, I'd say the cheapest quickest thing you can do is spend 200 quid on a 70 to 300 mil because that gives you a bit of flexibility because you know 300 mil especially if it's got a reasonable close focus mode you can photograph frogs and stuff with it So always to remember although you don't need a 300mm lens to sh- photograph a flower it can give you quite interesting results as well because it gives you a basically your background is a much narrower field of view so if you shoot with a, a 50mm and get the frog filling the frame you've got pretty much sort of i guess 100 degrees of view behind mm. it whereas you shoot with a 300mm of course it's only probably about 20 or 30 degrees of view looking straight ahead of you and just a bit behind it and it's easier to get a less distracting background then and i've shot orchids at 840 mil last year and i got some really nice results so yeah it sounds bizarre but <laughs> it does work. Quite there was a I forget the photographer's name he lugged around a canon 500 mil prime with loads of extension tubes to photograph lots of orchids and had some amazing pictures so yeah i so actually me- you do that to add to your new um dslr but <laughs> <you know. laughs>
1: But you know there there are so many options out there, and so we've tried to cover quite a lot of it in in one episode. But I think yeah. we probably will end up doing one maybe with some more
0: yeah kind we're of special to techniques. Get, and um, stuff. Double PA winner Daniel Trim on, and he has actually agreed to come on. Yeah. Hopefully Ben Andrew as well, and uh, we'll we'll probably have a few guests talk of us on over the years. Hopefully years. All that, I'm planning to do it for years. years huh? wow. We are planning Hi. to keep going for a while. We are.
1: We are. We're, yeah, we're yeah. Giving I'm up any time. But I'm there is, there is actually just one thing that I'd like to really quickly touch on um when it comes to wildlife and nature photography and it's something that is very important to me is whatever happens or whatever you're doing out there the welfare of your subject must always always come first so please cause as little disturbance as possible and you know really respect what you're photographing so don't trample an area completely you know don't do anything that would that would cause any suffering to any animal or plant and just really respect what you're photographing be respectful you know of the habitat the animal and also please be respectful of other photographers as well Mm. we're all human you know it's nice to kind of be respectful and support each other as wildlife photographers
0: yeah i mean we're not going to go down the rabbit hole of baiting using flash, but it's just use common sense and if you're in a nature reserve and the warden's telling you not to do something don't do it anyway you know have a bit of respect for the poor bloke that's spent you know up in some cases half his life looking after that wildlife
1: and also you know if you if you're at all concerned uh, it is related to wildlife photography but please be aware we do have some species that do require a license oh, to photograph indeed. them in this country so if you're at all you know not sure you can always drop drop us a, a message mm. um, and we, we can certainly do the research and let you know or there are various other organizations and websites that you can actually ask as well yeah. you, you can ask them you know, do you need a license to photograph this? And just stay, you know, on the on the right side of the law, basically.
0: Yeah, so I'll quickly touch on a couple of them. There's a Schedule 1 license. So birds like a barn owl and kingfisher, you can't disturb or risk disturbing them at the nest. And there's Schedule 5, so things like Great Crested newt can't disturb at all at any time so yeah I, th- I think we'll just go into the ethics and stuff a bit deeper in another episode because that's quite an important subject it wasn't addressed in any of the questions so we thought we'd just bring it up at the end there yeah um,
1: and i think it, it's always really important to respect you know what it is that you're photographing as well yeah. and the thing is you you see it in the photographs as well so you'll be able to tell uh, you know if you really kind of respect what it is that you're photographing and photograph it in its natural habitat doing what it does that's going to come across in your photographs but you yeah. know if an animal's being stressed out or yeah. it's it's feeling threatened you're also going to see that in the photographs as well yeah so that's just something to bear in mind
0: i think that's covered all the questions and a little bit at the end there so i think we'll probably wrap it up there probably come up to about the hour mark when i've edited it i want to say a big thank you to all the reviews on apple podcast oh i haven't mentioned how many downloads we've had have we
1: i know we're, what's what's that up we're, to we're now pu-
0: we're, we've surpassed twenty one hundred now. So oh,
1: wow. And we're just, you know, from both of us, a yeah. really massive thank you to everyone who's supported us. You know, sent in questions, comments, and you know, downloaded it and shared it and helped Help us to get the word out there about the podcast as well. we really really appreciate it, so yeah, thank you very much everyone. It,
0: what put it over two thousand was everyone sharing it on that off that recent post we put up on Facebook and Twitter So thanks so much for that guys. yeah we're up to two thousand one hundred and twenty four downloads. I don't think that's bad after six episodes.
1: no I think that's really good yeah. and we're up to one hundred and forty eight followers I think now on Twitter. Nice. and 272 followers on facebook so again thank you so much everyone and don't forget please do keep sending in your questions and your sightings as well so the next episode we will actually be kind of chatting sightings and that as well so yeah send us anything know, interesting you see let us here. know if you've right. seen anything exciting and you know hopefully everyone makes it through the storm okay
0: yeah we're currently recording in the middle of storm dennis so if you hear any whooshing noises that'd be what it is uh, that will
1: be the gales blowing around the house
0: i <laughs> guess i could mention as well we're on spotify now as well and we've already got something like 55 people following us on spotify um i added us to pod chaser where you can review us and a few other things on there um that, that's thanks to susie buttress from casual birder again who's already put a lovely review on there we'd like Susie. I think we might have to get Susie on the show at some point I think we should have to get her on there yeah Yeah. and I'll mention one more podcast because I found it a couple weeks ago and blitzed a whole lot of them because it's really good the critter shed it comes with a slight language warning it's a couple of lovely people over in the even more herpetologically depleted than britain island they've got even less i think they've got common lizards and that's about it officially over there obviously no snakes in ireland and they're talking spiders lizards a little bit about elephants in the zoo and yeah it's really really nicely done podcast hopefully uh, we, we might try and get those on the show as because well they're really cool yeah check that one out as well I've, i might do a regular um check this podcast out i think on this show at some point we can add it in with our, our news Mm, you'll put in the news i think so yeah yeah as usual check us out on facebook uk wildlife podcast twitter uk wildlife pod and check out my website uk-wildlife.co.uk i'm going to be putting news of all my workshops and stuff coming up uh, mostly photography i might be doing something else uh, involving learning about wildlife you can also join me i've teamed up with doors hall in essex to do some photography walks once a month so check that out doors hall you google doors hall it come up on there and under the events
1: well, if you want to you know check out my website if you visit vixpix.com but make sure you spell it v-i-k-s-p-i-c-s and yeah you can follow us individually on twitter and one thing i'd say actually is if if you've got any questions particularly on twitter Please do use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. It makes it a lot easier for us to find the questions when we're digging them out to answer them for you. So if you just make sure you use the hashtag, that would be fantastic.
0: Any sightings, any questions, or if you just want to shout out on the show, just, <laughs> give, just us give us a us tag. A yeah. Give us a tag and we'll try and squeeze it in. That's goodbye from us then. Yep.
1: Yeah. So yeah, take care everyone. Stay safe in the storm and thank you very much for listening.
0: All right. See you later.
1: See you later.